We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with your co-host, the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice, and his wife, Jeannie. Michael and Jeannie share with you the wisdom of the ancient Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. They offer tools and support five days a week. They will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love. In Aramaic, Rachma. Michael is the author of So Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information on Michael and Jeannie, please visit www.whyagain.com. And now your co-host, The Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. To the brightness within you and the truth that is rooted within me. Good afternoon. Welcome. This is uh, Tim Hayes here on Mindshifters Radio. And um, what we usually do at the beginning of the show is announce that today is Wednesday, August 26th, 2015. That helps the people in the archive. And um, I'm here holding the space for Michael and Jeannie to um, call in and join us as we talk about the ancient Aramaic art of forgiveness. Uh, we have somebody with a hand up, area code 248. You're in the air. Hi, Tim. I am uh, was having trouble uh, logging on. This is Michelle Pache, and I'm filling in with Jeannie, and um, we're going to run the show together today, I guess. If, um, Aren't we lucky? <laughs> I feel and, blessed. And here's, here's somebody that uh, his name is Dr. Michael Rice with a hand up, and I'm putting yeah. him on. Dr. Michael Rice? You got me too. Hey, technology, what can I say? Anyway, Welcome. Thank you for Kick calling in and opening things. Kick it off. All right. Well, I'm sitting here just looking at this awesome scene. It's probably about 84 degrees today. Sunny, be- beautiful, clear blue sky in the Ozarks. These awesome trees looking out over the lake and the dock at um, the marina here in town in Theodosia. It's absolutely gorgeous. And we're in the the throes of our our planning sessions we had another uh, support group meeting last night uh, we had one on saturday things moving forward with how this winter is going to look and what's going to happen at heartland and all the projects that are going on and you know just putting it all together is uh, is an interesting process and of course the all together means how do we take the principles of first century aramaic forgiveness to every mind, heart, and being on the planet, because that's what we're here for. And, of course, that idea of forgiveness has nothing to do with the culture's idea of forgiveness. It's got to do with, how do I remove from my mind what never belonged in my mind? How do I determine what belongs in my mind and what doesn't? Well, 
our determination is simple and it's easy. If you hold a newborn child, you know exactly what a human life is. If you don't have one of those active in you, then you have a problem. If you have a problem, we're here to support you solving your problem. If I have a problem, I'm here to support me solving my problem. And the problem is that we are designed to function as the active presence of love. And when we're not, it's because we've locked into something that never belonged in our structures. And that something is usually based in hostility and fear. Hostility and fear are anomalies in the human system. We're not designed for it. And so the restoration to the active presence of love is what it's all about. And we're honored and delighted with each of you who chooses to join us. Jeannie is, has a, a, a play day with some of the other ladies at Heartland today. They've gone to Branson to get nails done, get hair done, and see a movie and have lunch and all that kind of neat stuff. So hold the space for them as they travel to Branson and, and get to play together. And beyond that, what are you seeing? What's exciting in your world, Dr. Kim? Are you there? I'm here. Okay. Um, we had our support group last night, and we had another very loving, productive gathering. As we run our support group, the the pattern that I've developed over the years is that I do an hour of a video or an audio for the first from 6.30 to 7.30, and then we have a short break, and then I have the rest of the time until 9 o'clock to do discussion, questions, answers, and worksheet process. And one of our group members has had access to Dr. John Veldheim's work and asked if we could do one of those videos last night. So we did. It was on balancing the chakra energy system. And cool. then we had discussion. And in the discussion, people were talking about being part of uh, an energy-focused community with loving, with drum circles, with uh, dancing, rhythmic dancing, with energy exchange, with chanting, Peruvian whistles. This whole discussion was coming up, and as it went around the room, one of the members in the group got all triggered and decided to do a worksheet based on the fact that as she listened to this loving conversation, she was having pain and pressure in her chest and a headache and tears she couldn't control. So there was this loving, high-energy discussion going on and it resonated something less than love for one of our group members, and we supported this member in doing a worksheet process, which was very powerful. It opened a very deep space for several other people in the room, and it boiled down to issues of pursuing one's purpose in life and staying true to one's goals or getting distracted from that or shutting one down, shutting oneself down or pretending that one was getting shut down by somebody else. And it was just a beautiful, powerful process. And one of the keys in this was 
the person couldn't identify an emotion or a thought, but the person was simply aware of a pain and a pressure in her chest and a pain in her head, and that it was being stimulated or triggered seemingly by the discussion in the group. So we had a very, I would say, a highly educational process about how to come at a worksheet when you're not even sure who should go in the position of the trigger, what the emotion is, and what the thought is. And it was highly instructive. We ended up being able to figure out that the triggering process was the discussion. And eventually this person agreed that after she realized that she was having the emotion of grief about having lost that kind of connection in her life that she mm. used to then we were able to help her identify the thought that was generating the grief. And then we were able to have her help help her figure out that she was one C, that what she had done was somehow pull herself out of or given up on pursuing her vision and isolating herself from that kind of community. So it was a very powerful worksheet process, and she went from a level nine upset down to a level one, and and it's just one more example of how it's a blessing at many, many levels to participate in a support group. And if you haven't done it yet or you want to start one, I think we had somebody on from Oregon yesterday or the day before who said, just start one. You don't really have to have a whole bunch of expertise or lots and lots of experience, the willingness to get together with one or two other people and start doing the worksheet process or running a video or two really opens the space for a lot of healing. So that's my offering for today. Awesome. It does open the space for so much healing. I mean, we just see so many people who, when they touch the work, are in such unnecessary trauma and as they get hold of the tools and as they have support for moving through whatever their trauma is based in, everything changes. So we're here to support those kind of changes and to give people the insight and the opportunity to move through whatever is in them that is unlike love. And if we have a, a, a an experience and we don't know how to deflect the energy of that experience by staying connected to love, then we tend to absorb the energy of that experience through similar energies that we hold within us. And that absorption intensifies the experience that we're having. And uh, without the technology, without the tools for dissolving that, it's pretty tough, pretty tough game to play because people just go from generation to generation to generation, experience to experience to experience, accumulating more and more of the same with no idea that it can that it can be removed and it can be removed. So when you think forgiveness, think removal. The word forgive in Aramaic is shebag and it literally means to cancel and it has to do with contacting that in you which is the driver for your trauma and removing the by, by canceling the driver, you get to access directly what is at the root of the trauma, 
and remove it. If you would haven't uh, if you haven't accessed that technology yet, it's available freely on our website. You can go to www.whyagain.org and click on the bullseye. And as you click on the bullseye, that will open a whole series of links that will tell you all about forgiveness. It will give you at least 16 radio shows where we've walked somebody through the whole process, so there are at least 16 sets of custom instructions for how to forgive. There are There's a uh, PowerPoint presentation that walks you step-by-step step through the core of the forgiveness process, what we've learned the last 35 years in, in engaging in and understanding how first century Aramaic forgiveness works. And so all of that's available free on our website. And of course, we're here to have the conversation with you to answer your questions about uh, how do I really do this? How do I approach this? So that's why we're here. That's the whole reason. That's it, the reason for everything that we do. And so, Michelle, do you have anything to share before we check for callers or things happening in the chat room? Uh, chat room is quiet. I apologize. Opened a little slow today. Um, no, we've got a caller with a hand up. Um, I think it's area code 949, the last four, 9934. So we're live. Who do we have calling today? Um, hi, Michael. It's Charlene Elizabeth in California. Delighted to hear your voice. How are you, young lady? I'm fine, thank you. Um, you may remember that I called at the beginning of the summer with a question about terrorism. I do. And I'm still struggling with that. I've kind of rephrased my question, and I'll ask it again. Okay. How, how do we as uh, individuals and as a country uh, love our enemies and still exercise our right to self-defense at the same time? Well, my take would be the first step you have to do is stop loving your enemies. That's the first thing you have to do, because you can't simultaneously love your enemy and kill them, of course, the way that the culture talks about loving. So you, you stop loving your enemy, and you begin to understand what the original instruction is. You know, most people think they're following the teachings of a man named Yeshua, and what they're following is Greek philosophy. Yeshua, the man who is popularly known as Jesus, never said, love your enemies. The words were never spoken. The idea was never put forward. As though there's something, you're, a verb that you're going to engage in, you're going to do something to your enemy that the world calls love. And so the first, the first order of business is, we need to straighten out our definition to the words. You know, Karl Marx says, if you want to destroy a culture, all you have to do is change the definition of its words. And people will not be able to think rationally about any subject where the meaning of a word is changed. So let's start and look at the command that the Greeks translated as, love your enemy, and see what that actually said. So if we go to the first century Aramaic language, we don't hear Yeshua saying, love the creator, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a Greek misinterpretation, mistranslation of the words. In Aramaic, what it says is, have rachma, when you think of the creator, when you think of neighbor, in order to maintain self. So the word rachma is... 
a word that describes a concept that is non-existent in the English language referenced by any single word. It is non-existent in Greek or Latin. There's no such concept or no such word that represents the idea that was expressed by the word rachma. We have to go to a whole paragraph to understand what that word means. So the closest we could come to understanding what that word rachma is, what it was, was not have love for neighbor, but have rachma for creator, neighbor, in order to maintain self. So the word rachma, we actually did a show about 10 days ago on this. I don't know if anybody might know what day we talked a lot about rachma and Cuba, but it was in the last couple of weeks anyway. Rachma is a filter over the frontal lobes of the brain that causes the mind to only have access to intentions that are keyed to love. Now, when you look at that without the brain cells to understand that what was being said, and you go back to Yeshua 2,000 years ago, and he says, you've got to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear in order to engage his teaching. I think we're fairly safe in assuming that most everybody in this audience have what we call physical eyes and ears, so he obviously wasn't talking about that. What he was saying is you have to have the brain cells. An example, you know, we live in a Greek-oriented culture where sin is an identity that people are forced to take on in order to be saved, and you're a sinner, and it's terrible, and you know, all the the brain cells, all the concepts that go along with that in our culture. Yet in Aramaic, let's, let's, let's build some new brain cells and so have the eyes to see and the ears to hear what that word means in Aramaic. So the word sin in Aramaic is an archery term. If I'm out on the archery range in a competition and I fire at the target and I miss the bullseye, the scorekeeper would yell, sin. It would mean, I am off the mark. Mm-hmm. So the replacement for all the stuff we've had shoved down our throats about sin by the Greek-oriented translations of the scriptures is simple. If I put an energy that's off the mark in my physiology, I'm creating an offense to my physiology, and I'm beginning the destruction of my physiology when I sin, when I do something that's off the mark. So, you know, in context of our, our opening, if I hold a newborn child, I recognize that the newborn, as well as I, am made of the stuff called love. That's my state of being. That's my essential nature. If I put hate and fear and anger and rage and guilt and grief and condemnation and gossip and slander and vengeance and terror into my structure, then I've filled my structure with energies that are off the mark. When they said the wages of sin is death, that wasn't some kind of theological threat God's going to get you for your sins. They were just saying... Here's the way it works, folks. If you put enough energy in your structure that doesn't belong in your structure, then you're going to destroy it. You put an energy into a cell that doesn't belong in the cell, that energy in the cell is chemistry that starts the destruction of the cell. So the wages of sin is death isn't about what the Greeks have taught us, God's going to come get you. It's just We self-destruct when we engage in hate and fear and anger and rage and guilt and all those things. So when you recognize that Rachma 
is about the, the new brain cells, what we're inviting people to engage in. And it's a whole mind shift. So that's why this is called Mind Shifters Radio. It's a whole mind shift from the culture's idea of love your neighbor. So what it's saying is that if I maintain this filter called Rachma, then the only pool of intentions that I'll have access to from my mind are those which are keyed to love. The other two possible pools of intentions come through the filters of fear and hostility. And those pools of intentions are negative and destructive. So we have three pools of intentions in the frontal lobes of the brain. Those that are constructive, those that are destructive, and those that are negative. So if I keep, if I follow the the offering that was given by Yeshua 2,000 years ago, then I only see, or I only have access to constructive intentions. Why is that important? And you know, there's a whole uh, piece of work, a whole set of brain cells that needs to be built in order for that to make sense. So this, the frontal lobes of the brain are intentions, and you'll remember the ancients who understood all of this said to us, that the road to hell was paved with good intentions. So, well, what the heck, you know? We got people out there writing books about how great intentions are and the power of intentions, and, and it's all a, fall- a fallacy. An intention can no more move a muscle or cause a behavior than a shadow can carry a stone. Intentions have no power. They're a wonderful component in the process, but... By example, if I said, well, I have the intention to type this wonderful recipe in a computer so I can send it to my friend so they can create the recipe. If I don't turn that intention into a goal, I'll never sit down at the computer. I'll never type it in. My friend will never have the recipe and be able to create it. So the intention is important. It's a starting point. But then I have to turn that intention into a goal. Once I turn that intention into a goal, I create a stress. And the functioning purpose of my mind is to show me behaviors with which to alleviate my stress. So when I say, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to send this to my friend, but, you know, I'm busy and I've got other goals, so, you know, I might get to it next week or next month or next year. I may never do the behavior of typing it in and sending it to my friend. But once I sit down and I say, now I have this intention, I'd like to do this, and now I'm going to commit to doing it, I just elevated an intention to a goal. Now I have a stress in my mind, and my mind is probably going to say, sit down at that computer, get typing. I type the recipe in, I put it in an email, and I send it to my friend, and now my friend can recreate the recipe. So there's a whole train of things that has to happen to get behavior. Intentions are just the first step. Rachma assures that all of the raw material for your goals, which ultimately will drive your behavior, are constructive. Yeshua says that's the first order of business in creating a human life. Got nothing to do with loving your neighbor, loving the creator as yourself. It has to do with maintaining self because not only is Rachma this filter over intentions, but it's also the gateway into which human life enters. If you look around at many people in the world today, it's like they're this bundle of rage and guilt and grief and pain. 
where did the human life go? Where did the active presence of love go? If Rachma has been shut down, then human life, the created state of being love, disappears. Rachma, his secondary purpose, is a gateway that keeps human life, the state of love and being, available in our lives. Love is a noun. It's something that we are. It's not something that we do. So now that I've followed the first law, I stand in a state of being in the face of my enemy. If I don't understand that whole process, then probably if I have an enemy, and you'll notice that Yeshua says, have rachma for those who hate you. Have rachma for those who despitefully use you. That's the most important group of people to have rachma for. Because if you have hostility or fear toward that person who ostensibly hates you or would despitefully use you, then your perception is going to come from hostility and fear. Most people think that perception is a passive process. It doesn't have anything to do with what's happening in the world. We just see something out there and we record it in our minds. Well, the root of Yeshua's teaching is the exact opposite. No, perception is a very active process. And what you build your perception out of, if it's not Rachma, then it's hostility or fear. And that activity of hostility or fear in us sets up an energy field. And that energy field of hostility or fear literally radiates from us. You know, I used to uh, keynote back over three or so decades ago, I used to keynote at a conference called Global Science. And one year we had a man named Marcel Vogel who came to the conference and he brought with him a thing called a Delaware camera. And with the Delaware camera, Marcel could take a picture. This guy was a 23-year senior scientist from IBM. He could take a picture of the high-energy waves that leave the mind when we think a thought. If I'm thinking a thought, enemy, hate, fear, attack, then the energy field that radiates from me, that sprays out from me onto that enemy, is that acid of hate and fear and attack. There aren't many people who like having acid sprayed on them, and so the enemy is likely to participate in the same energy and attack back. But what Yeshua says, and people don't have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, they don't have the brain cells to understand it, is if you're coming from Rachma, then your perception is going to be based in love. And if your perception is based in love, then what's going to happen is you're going to literally spray a different active energy on the person that you yesterday called enemy. And that energy that's going to be sprayed on them is going to be the energy of love. And when that occurs, your enemy is probably going to shift and change. But we've been playing the game of rage and guilt and grief and war for so long, people say, well, that's just not practical, Michael. Well, let me give you an example of how practical it is. Real-life story. I used to speak, or I, actually we were just there a few months ago again, fairly regularly speak at a, a place in Atlanta called Unity North up in Marietta, Georgia. Several years ago, 
I went to speak, and I'd been there the year before, presented a week of workshops, and on the way up to the platform for their first service, I had a young woman who came over to me and said, Michael, I want to thank you for saving my life. It's like, oh, really? Well, tell me about it. What, 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 what happened? You know, I just got into town late last night. It wasn't me. And she said, well, last year, I was at all of your workshops, and whenever you would say the words, <laughs> conscious act present love, and you'll hear me say those words often, she said, that really registered with me. And over the ensuing months, I would oftentimes hear your voice in my head saying the words, conscious, active, present, love. So, well, that's cool. Great. And she said, about six months ago, I got home from work, went into my apartment, locked the door from the inside, and found myself locked in the apartment with a man who had a knife. This man held a knife to my throat and told me he was going to rape me and kill me. And I knew he was serious. And she said, I was terrified. He stripped me and began to rape me. And she said, all of a sudden, in my terror, I heard your voice in my head saying the words, conscious, active, present love. And she said, that threw a switch in me. Something clicked. But all of a sudden, I shifted out of my terror, and my offering would be that she shifted out of fear into Rachma. I shifted out of terror into a space of love. She opened Rachma and had contact with her human beingness again, her created self. And she said, when that happened, even though I knew I was dead, my fear disappeared. And she said, I looked in this man's eyes, he's on top of me, and what I could see was, and her words were, stark raving terror in his eyes. That was her perception of it. And she said, as soon as I saw that stark raving terror, I went into total compassion for him. Now, through the hostility or fear filters, you won't see compassion for somebody else in terror. What you'll see is more terror. But she said, I, I instantly went into, even though he's literally physically raping me and has a knife at my throat and has assured me he's going to kill me and I believe he's telling me the truth, even though I know I am about to be murdered, I'm in total compassion for this man. And she said, as soon as I looked at him with that compassion, he began to cry he dropped his knife, he got up off of me and ran out of my apartment. Now, my input would be that what happened was her perception through terror sprayed the same terror on him energetically as he was spraying toward her. And their joining made for an insane event where there could have been tragic results. But because she had some idea and had done the practice of setting Rachma in her mind, she was able to shift into love. My offering would be that she, when she did that, she instantly began to spray love on this man. And that changes everything. If we don't have the brain cells to see that, and go find me those brain cells anywhere in the world, 
if we stop, if you've got 300 million people who hate the, the child abuser, hate the terrorist, what's everybody spraying on the child abuser or the terrorist? Hate. What are they spraying on their own cellular structure? Hate. What do you do when you're in hate and everybody's playing the hate game? You hate and you kill and you do terrible things. You do insane things. You do ridiculous things. Human beings don't do ridiculous things. Human beings are love. They do loving things. If you want to see another really powerful example go on Amazon.com, and I think the last time I bought one, it was 5 or $6. Buy the movie Amish Grace. Amish Grace is the true story of the 11 or 12 girls back a few years ago, I believe it was in Pennsylvania, were shot by a man who went into their school, and I think five or six of them were, were murdered. And Watch the struggle in this community of the individuals in the community who have as their base some level of understanding of rachma. They don't use the word. They don't describe it, but that's their whole purpose in their religious practice. And watch how they struggle and transform the world around them through rachma. It's, a, it's one of the most practical examples that you will ever see of people who are actually efforting living those words of Yeshua, not loving their neighbor, but being the space of love which sprays the active presence of love on those around them. Just let me recount one of the scenes from the movie. One of the elders from the church goes with one of the men whose daughters have been murdered to the home of the wife of the man who did the murders. This woman's father is there. True story. This woman's father is there. And they look out the window and they see these two Amish men coming to their house and they're like, oh my God, what are they going to do? Are they going to you know, attack us? What, what's going on here? And this elder and the man who's just had his daughter murdered by this woman's wife and the man then turned the gun on himself and killed himself, knock on the door, and explain that they're there to offer her condolence for the loss of her husband. That's what love does. That's what love does. Now these two people, the father and the, and the wife, are like, well, what's just happened? When they bury the man who murdered five or six out of 11 or 12 girls that he shot in this little tiny schoolhouse, the whole community showed up at his funeral. To be the space of love for this woman's suffering from her loss and her pain and her husband actually murdered several young girls. That's Rockman in action. We can't talk about that in words the world understands very well. It's tough to do. To build the brain cells, you know, for what Yeshua was talking about is a process that takes time. What do you do with the terrorist? Well, the first order of business, because if you're doing what the world has done forever, 
You're doing more terrorism. You know, of course, we don't call it terror. We call it shock and awe. But it's terrorism. If you do terrorism, then those who are terrorized will come back with their terrorism. We'll come back with, we'll come back. And we've been doing this for centuries. My offering is, as one famous author wrote, and I'm not remembering his name right now, the teachings of Yeshua have not been tried and found wanting. They have not been tried. Watch Amish Grace. It's a powerful example. Watch Gandhi. Gandhi exhibits his efforting to work through his trauma so that he can function out of Rakhla, function as a space of love. These are examples for something that's almost unspeakable and unfathomable in a world of people who've been brainwashed with fear and rage and guilt and hatred and vengeance and violence and have not yet been educated as to what Rachma means or what it is. So the first order of business, you know, much like there's, there's an interesting question that Yeshua is asked in the book of Luke, uh, a scribe. And a scribe is someone who works with the scriptures. He's, you know, so the scribe stands up to test Yeshua and he says, Master, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Yeshua knows this man's a scribe. And instead of answering him, he turns the question back because he knows this man can parrot the answer. So he says, well, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now he knows the man can parrot the answer because he's got it in brain cells. He's got the words, but the man doesn't have the experience or to never ask the question. So instead of saying, that's right, that's the answer to the question, if you read that passage, I think it's Luke ten twenty five. He doesn't say that's right. What Yeshua says to him when the man parrots back the answer that he already knows, Yeshua knows he knows. What he says to him is, you spoke the truth. And then he tells him the question that his answer answers. So it starts out, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Have love for creator, neighbor, self. And then Yeshua says, do this, and you shall live. And what I hear Yeshua saying in that passage is, sir, you asked me about eternal life, your distraction, what keeps you from you doing the work you're here to do. You parrot words from the scriptures that you write down all the time. You're a scribe, but sir, you are already dead. There's no sense asking me about eternal life because you don't have life in you yet. If you do this, if you have Rachma, you will open a gateway in the frontal lobes of your brain, and as a result, you will have a human life. And that's the starting point for the answer. We're back about a year ago. I was doing some research on this topic, and I came back came across a quote from a rabbi in the first century BC. And this rabbi says, "In a world where there is, in his word, was no human life, 
we must each strive. We must each strive to be human. What do you do with the terrorist? You strive to be human first and foremost, and then you'll get instructions directly from the Creator as to what comes next. Now that's a tall order. Yeah. You know, it's a tall order. You, you, you take. You know, there's a there's another passage where. Yeshua has talked to a whole group of disciples, people who've been with him for a while. And they say, well, what, what do we have to do to do what you're doing? And Yeshua says, and this is an idiom, you've got to understand the idiom, it's not about what the world is translated to mean. He says, you've got to eat my body and drink my blood. Now, that's been made something about, you know, wine and wafers, got nothing to do with wine and wafers. It's an Aramaic idiom. And today... If you were to let's say let's say that I'm the the most awesome, most skilled cabinet maker that the world has ever seen, and Charlene, you come to me and say, Michael, I want to become a cabinet maker like you. If I were Aramaic, I would say, then you've got to eat my body and drink my blood. It wouldn't mean you'd have to take wine and wafers in. It would mean that you're going to have to integrate everything about cabinet making that I know, that I understand, and you're going to have to follow the pathway, the steps that I'm offering to you. So that's the Aramaic idiom. So this group of people says to Yeshua, how do we do what you're doing? How, how is this done? Remember, this man functions as love. He functions out of Rachma. He says, you've got to eat my body and drink my blood. And what's the result? A full half of the group say, this is too hard a saying, and they leave. They quit. They no longer follow Yeshua. Who's following Yeshua today? Who's actually choosing to do what he said to do, to live as the space of love? Sadly, there's a whole lot more conversation about sin and death and saving and crosses and punishment and fear and terror and trauma and blood. Excuse me. You'll never hear Yeshua say you're going to be saved by anything to do with blood. To so be saved by eating his body and drinking his blood, that is, understanding what he taught, having the brain cells for it, integrating it, and living it, which means that you've got to engage in the process of forgiveness to remove the hostility and fear that you've been brainwashed with, and that's what we need to do. Otherwise, there's really not too much to talk about. Go get the guns and kill them and and then they'll come back with bigger guns to kill you, and then you can get bigger guns to go and try to kill them, and their children will kill your children, and blah, 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 and on it goes. But first of all, if you're going to follow his directive, you've got to know what he said. And he didn't say, love your neighbor or your enemy. He said, Rachma. Open a gateway, open a filter that allows you to live as a human being. And when you do, you're going to function out of love. You're not going to function out of hostility or fear terrorism or trauma. You're going to become a, a, a changer of the world. And that's what we're working to, to do and to produce in the world is a group of elders, nothing to do with age, but a group of those who have actually engaged in the teachings and who actually live actually live as that presence of love in the face of trauma and terror and hatred and vengeance and grief and rage, and sadness, and pain. Well, that's going to take a long time. It's a process, no question. But we've been working on it. You know, I got about a half a century under my belt of working on it and sharing it with 
you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people around the globe, and more and more people are engaging all the time and understanding on new and deeper levels. Sadly, unfortunately, people uh, approach it and go, they get an experience of it, and they then run off and say, oh, well, now I got it. It's like, no, it, it, it takes a little more time to hang out with the understanding and the teachings to really, truly get it, really, truly understand it, and then to do the work to actually engage in the instruction. So that becomes the big challenge. Now, that's one of the reasons we have Heartland as a space where people can come and deepen their experience of actually doing the work that Yeshua recommended rather than parroting words about it and, uh, and picking up weapons. Okay. That's a lot to think about. Well, my invitation would be that rather than think about it, what you might want to do is go to the website, click on the bullseye, and start following instructions and use the tool that he gave us for achieving the result. And the tool was forgiveness. And forgiveness is a tool for, you know, again, the Greeks turned it backward, just like everything else that he taught. The Greeks turned it backward. And basically what we see in America passing as as theology is Greek philosophy. You know, if Yeshua sat in most churches today, he'd say, that's all Greek to me. <laughs> but I'd invite you to go to the website, click the bullseye in the middle of the page. You have to scroll down a little bit, click the bullseye, and start to follow the instructions. What is it in you that inhibits you in any given circumstance with your, your mother, your father, your son, your children, your spouse, your former spouse, your present spouse, your future spouse? You know, what is it in you that you need to face and forgive so that you can stay connected to love in their presence and actually mm -hmm. engage and do the work. Because knowing about it isn't worth the powder to blow it to hell. It's actually engaging it. So our, our invitation to everyone who's listening is, please engage. And as you engage, what happens is you start to transform. And that's where the real work happens and that's where the real ability to function as the presence of love occurs. Okay, Michael. Well, thank you very much. Awesome. And I and I know that, you know, I covered a lot of territory, so I'd invite you, you know, when the show, probably within the next 24 hours or so, the show will be posted on the archives, and you can probably listen to it at least a dozen times, and each time, oh, a new set of brain cells, new level, new layer, new way of understanding. And uh, certainly, if you if you do that or you engage, uh, as the dialogue goes on, as the process happens, there'll be more questions, more thoughts, more to engage in, and, and we're here to support you totally and completely. All right. Thank you again. Thank you for the question, mm -hmm. young lady. Yeah, well, bye for now. All right, lots of love and blessings. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Fabulous question in, in a world so fraught with fear that uh, it seems that the only response is to strike out, let's get a bigger weapon and let's kill more people, then, then everything will be okay. It's never going to be okay by that measure. You know, that's, you know, the ancient scriptures say there'll come a time when the whole world will be fooled. It's a man named David Bohm. David Bohm is a physicist who was a cohort of Einstein, actually worked in Einstein's laboratory for a time period. He also helped to source the holonomic model of the mind with Carl Pribram at Stanford University. 
And what David says is that the problem with our world is a thing he labeled as sustained incoherence, and that is thinking in a way that produces traumatic results, refusing to be responsible for the traumatic results, and keeping up with the same way of thinking. He calls it sustained incoherence. He says the enemy is our thinking. That's the enemy that we really need to deal with. And when our capacity to think comes from conscious awareness and the state of being, it comes through the, fro- the, the filter, Rachma. When that occurs, everything changes. So we're here to change it. We're here to support the change. We've got a hand up. Area code. Awesome. Well, let's say hello. Sure. Uh, area code 901. You're on the air now. 901, you're on the air. Give us a name. Where are you calling from? Is this Memphis, Tennessee? Hello, 901, you're on the air. Switchboard problems. Yeah, maybe she should have stepped away from the phone for a minute with that other conversation. She's been on for a while. So 901, you're on the air. If you come back, we'll be delighted to say hello to you and... It's the switchboard, Michael. Oh, is it? We're having technical difficulties again. Okay. Bummer. Well, 901, if you call back in, uh, I would be honored and delighted to chat with you. Call back in and push one, and hopefully the switchboard will behave and we'll get to talk. Dr. Tim, you have anything to add to that conversation about what you do about terrorism? Well, just that it... I have to agree with the caller that it it isn't um, an easy thing to do. As simple as it is, it's um, it requires perseverance. It requires diligence, and that it compared to what our culture teaches us is completely counterintuitive. And yet, it's the only thing I've found that works. And I have been in a wide range of situations in my life dealing with people in all kinds of different levels of trauma and anger and upset. And by far, the best tool I have is being able to go inside myself and dismantle my own fear or my resentment or my hostility and be able to presence that energy of compassion and love. And I have many, many stories in my life as a as an individual, as a person, as a therapist, as a as a, a counselor in correctional facilities where it's just proven time and time again that you don't fight fire with fire. We have that saying in our world, but there's an insanity there. Imagine what would happen if you called the fire department because a a building on your property had a fire in it, a small fire in the corner, and you wanted to get some help before it, you know, took over, and the fire department showed up with flamethrowers. We don't fight fire with fire, and we will never end the hostilities in our world by being more hostile or more aggressive or more powerful. Now, Tim, uh, you know, something I didn't think of in in responding that, uh, and you introduced this to the show back, oh, I don't know, a year or two ago now, 
was the story of a gentleman in the, the concentration camps in Nazi Germany uh, that's recounted in the uh, the book, The uh, Gentle Art of Blessing. Perhaps you could share that story. That would really be uh, perfect to, uh, as another way to look at and understand what we're talking about. Well, it's very similar to the story of Nelson Mandela, who spent 26 years in prison and refused to give in to hate. But when they went to liberate the prisoners from the concentration camps, that one of the physicians that went in noticed this tall, robust gentleman and assumed he must have only been there for a few days or a few weeks because everybody else in the camp was emaciated and uh, suffering from malnutrition and various diseases. And when they finally got to interview him, they found out he'd been there for something like seven years. And in trying to understand how that could possibly be, they interviewed him about his story. And he was a lawyer, and he was in Poland, and he was there when um, the invading people came in and lined up his family against the wall and shot them all and spared him because he spoke multiple languages. And he said at the time he begged to be killed with his family and they wouldn't because they could use him and he said at that time I had to make a decision and because he had worked as an attorney he said I knew from my work as an attorney what the energy of anger and hatred had done to people and he said I just decided at that point in time whether I had a day to live or a week or a year to live I was going to live from love. I was not going to give in to the anger and hatred. And he said, that's what I did when I came here, and these are the results, that he refused to give in to the hatred of his oppressors, of his abusers, of his jailers, of the people that were taking other family members and other people that he lived near to the gas chambers and killing them. He refused to move into hatred, and the result was he spread love wherever he went, he embodied that loving energy, and he stayed healthier and more fit than anyone around him. It's a similar story that's told in Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, where in the middle of a concentration camp, Viktor Frankl recognized that some people stayed kind and loving, even when being kind to another prisoner got that person abused by the guard. And so, you know, it's a real-life situation. It's, a, it's probably the most practical advice I've ever received for how to improve the quality of my life, and that has to do with staying focused on what I have control over, and I have control over the emotions I create in each moment. And I control those emotions and create them by what I choose to focus my conscious awareness upon. The focus of my conscious awareness is a gift that was given to me by the Creator, and it's probably the only gift that can't be taken from me. I get to choose what I focus my awareness on. My awareness on creates my emotions and my experience in that moment. 
And that's how it's the most practical advice I've ever been given. And we're down to just at a minute before closing the show. Michael, you want to wrap it up? Well, sure. That'd be just uh, awesome to say thank you, everybody, for joining us and uh, share this show with somebody. You know, the the, uh, archive will be there. We've got over a 1,000 shows in the archives, and they're free MP3s. All you do is double-click on them or to listen to them on your computer, your phone, or whatever, or you can listen to them on the, uh, you can right-click on them and save them to your computer and transfer them to your phone or iPad or whatever it is you listen on. So take the show and share it with others. Post it to your website. Make it available. Put it out there far and wide. We're looking to make this available to every mind, heart, and being on the planet. Beyond that, we invite you to bring a stranger to the show tomorrow and create the best year yet of your eternal life an awesome gift to give the world. We appreciate you being with us. If you're ready to do an intensive, you can look at our uh, schedule for uh, for next summer. It's up posted on the website. And we may be doing a codependence communication practicum in Mexico this, uh, this winter. If you're interested in that, let us know. Blessings. Talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice and his wife, Jeannie who present the internal Aramaic process of forgiveness. Michael and Jeannie are here every Monday through Friday on Earth Angels Radio. For more on Michael and Jeannie, please visit www.whyagain.com. That's www.whyagain.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.